Well, my mother was Russian, but she was a Russian Jew, so she wasn't really Russian, uh, wasn't really European, wasn't really North American. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who said that he thinks that some of the people of our time would have been preachers if they weren't artists in another time where that would have been the way to get your message across, they would have been preachers. Do you see yourself sometimes that way? Sort of a well, uh, you know, I was brought up to consider myself a descendant of the high priest. A Cohen. Uh, and uh, it was taken rather seriously in my family uh, that we were direct descendants of Aaron, the high priest. So there has been that, that sense. I've always been attracted to ceremony and to dealing with sacred material. Maybe that's in, 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 the, in the blood. Uh, I did have some consuming vision, you know, I do have certain secret chambers of thought, you know, which involved, uh, you know, reestablishing a theocracy and being the high priest of a new invisible temple and dominate the world with a compassionate vision. Any system you contrive without us will be brought down. We warned you before, and nothing that you built has stood. You have your drugs. You have your guns, you have your pyramids, your pentagons. With all your grass and bullets, you cannot hunt us anymore. All that we disclose of ourselves forever is this warning. Nothing that you built has stood. Any system you contrive without us will be brought down. One of the great themes of Kabbalistic thought is the, the idea that the thrust of Jewish activity is the repair of God. God, in creating the world, dispersed itself. The creation is a catastrophe. There are pieces of him or her or it that are everywhere. In fact, and the, the specific task of the Jew is to repair the face of God. The prayers are to remind God that it was once a harmonious unity. Welcome to Vendée Radio. Today it is the 5th of December, the Feast of St. Sabbath in the year of grace 2023. It is a great honour today to be joined by my second sacerdotal guest, Father James Maudsley. Father Maudsley broadcasts on the channel Scripture and Tradition, Father J.M., and his channel exists to promote an idea and to promote the new old book series, which presents the same idea. The idea is that if the Church prays for the conversion of the Jews according to the immemorial liturgy, then this will require such self-sacrificial love and such profound understanding on the part of Catholics that God will find the prayer irresistible. The way to freedom from all tyranny is opened by scripture and tradition. Every page of the Bible is Jesus Christ. Every minute of the traditional mass announces him. If we seek God, we will find him. If we love him, this very love sets us free in time and in eternity. Father James Maudsley was ordained a Catholic priest in 2016, refusing to comply with the state church tyranny and refusing to tyrannically compel the faithful. He left his community without permission in January 2022 
incurring suspension and later expulsion. He will seek regularization once the hierarchy ceases to obstruct tradition. Father Morsley, welcome to Vonday Radio. Thank you, Theo. Well, today we're going to be discussing two of your most recent releases in the New Old series, and it's worth mentioning to our viewers here about the entirety of that series. You've published the first work there, Adam's Deep Sleep, on the passion of our Lord prefigured in the Old Testament. The second book is Crushing Satan's Head, the Virgin Mary's victory over the Antichrist. A third work is Crucifixion to Creation, the roots of the traditional mass in the Old Testament. And the two books we're going to be discussing today, a single work, perhaps two works, uh, one work in two volumes, If You Believed Moses. If You Believed Moses, Volume 1, The Conversion of the Jews Promised in the Torah. And then If You Believed Moses, Volume 2, The Conversion of the Jews as the Close of History. Unfortunately, Volume 2 of your work there has been censored by Amazon, but I gather that you have recently been able to secure a publication and means of dissemination via Lulu. That's right, and there'll be links on my channel to that. So there's pretty much always a way to get get the word out. Excellent. The providential supply of the internet has made sure that I think this incredibly important information and doctrine is available to Catholics throughout the world. And I will be putting a link to both the paperback and hardback as well as ebook editions below this video. Now, recently you had a discussion on the Dr. Deep State channel, friends of this channel, regarding Dr. Haugen's new book, In Pursuit of the Metaverse. And I think that the release of If You Believe Moses, Volume 2, and In Pursuit of the Metaverse is quite providential timing. I've been quite uh, privileged to provide some degree of support to both those works. And it strikes me that here we have in action the complementary work of the two swords. Dr. Haugen's work focuses on history, on culture, sociology, a little bit of philosophy as well. And your own works, Father, are very much focused on biblical exegesis liturgy and theology yeah it's one god the source of all truth so as long as we're pursuing truth we can find many uh ways he speaks to us amen so where i'd like to begin father then is just to look at the grounding of your entire series here to begin with typological exegesis because it as you mentioned in your work there is a contemporary ignorance of the spiritual sense of scripture and we've we've forgotten so much that is good following after the world's ideas about the scriptures I and mean, i heard that i don't want to start on a negative note but a few years ago i heard on radio 4 uh, a jewish lady talking about the prophet samuel and she was a psychologist and I thought, well this is interesting to, to have something biblical on public radio but in fact, she was saying that he had a troubled childhood because his mother, Anna, gave him to the temple. Um, or th this was before the temple was built, but the, to, to look after the tabernacle. Basically, she, she said he was psycholo psychologically troubled and he took that out on the people of Israel by trying to control them with religion. And yet this is Samuel chosen by God 
for the transition from the the judges to the kings mm. and it's when you reject the truth god is speaking in love in order to come up with some worldly explanation for it which is predicated on we are oppressed and religion is oppressive we've got to escape it and this is put out on public radio as a way to understand the old testament that they're they're a group the saints of the old testament are troubled people who trouble society this is far from the truth so father maudsley what really edified me about reading all of your works in the new old series was this recovery of typology of the primacy of the spiritual sense of scripture and to hear that expounded from a priest i think that with the abandonment of typology we've had laity come to the fore i'm thinking of writers like dr scott hahn and brant petrie to elucidate the spiritual sense of scripture in the absence of clerical teaching on this but it is not the proper domain of the laity to do that mystagogy going back to the ancient church mystagogical catechesis for the benefit of our viewers many of whom will be aware of this but after the sacrament of baptism christians received this formation which was about initiating them into the mysteries and this of course was the domain of the clergy but it had two sort of axes so of course it was expounding on the mysteries of the holy sacraments and their effects but it was also about the symbolic language of the biblical texts about the the sacraments and rituals of the church and those of the created cosmos itself so you had the allegorical axis in which episodes from the old testament find their fulfillment in the new to use saint augustine's famous a statement the new testament lies hidden in the old and the old testament is unveiled in the new and of course typology is the actual hermeneutic which is within sacred scripture itself when saint paul refers to christ as the new adam so perhaps you could say something there father just to, with your inspiration and your your overall theme here with the new old series in this recovery of communication of the spiritual sense of scripture well the word of god will not be bound and if the enemy has targeted seminaries and clerics to mislead us um it's wonderful that lay people like dr han are putting the truth out there and in john uh, chapter 5 jesus says that moses spoke of me or moses wrote of me you search for the scriptures and he gives testimony to me and we think well where did that happen where did moses write of jesus Saint Peter answers that the key is Deuteronomy 18 where Moses said God will raise up a prophet like me and this is Jesus um from among your brethren but Saint Paul spent months and years he says expounding the law and the prophets saying nothing other than what Moses wrote and the prophet said about Jesus uh, death and resurrection and you think wow so where is this in the old testament about jesus's death and resurrection and he himself after his resurrection walking on the road to mouse explained to his two disciples how the the law and the prophets and the psalms were all about him 
And so I remember you, you can read that and pass over it, but having it caught my attention on one reading and then reading through the Old Testament and basically not being able to find Jesus anywhere there and thinking, well, how can it all be about him? But then the church fathers teach us how to read it. So St. Augustine and St. Jerome both saying that Adam's sleep and Noah's sleep when he was drunk, both uh, are pointing to the passion of Christ. And it's a big surprise the first time you see it. But we know Jesus died on Golgotha, which is the place, it means the place of the skull, Calvary, Calvaria. That's Adam's skull. So Jesus died where Adam was buried. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus rose to life in the same garden, very close by, because they couldn't carry his body far away on just before the Sabbath. And it's a garden where, where Adam was created. And there's every reason to think, lots of reasons I put in the third book, that where Adam was formed from the slime of the earth and first came to life, this this is where Jesus rose. And it could be the same place, indeed, where Eve was taken from his side. So Adam wakes up to see Eve, which Moses wrote about. And he said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I mean, what a moment for Adam. Can you imagine that you're coming to existence and behold the Garden of Eden, and then God puts a deep sleep on you and you wake up and there's your bride. What, what a joy. What is it like then for Jesus rising from the dead and now the time of preparation is over and his church, which was formed from the blood and water, which flowed from his pierced heart, is born and begun. So he meets his mother and then he meets with St. Mary Magdalene and then the apostles and they come to the faith and he beholds his bride, the church, has begun. So in Psalm 77, it says, uh, from the beginning, I will open my mouth in parables. From the beginning. What are God's parables in the beginning? It's basically everything you read mm. in the Torah and Genesis, the creation. God is speaking and the world comes into existence. The things are created because he speaks. But everything he creates has a meaning. So if we look around creation, it speaks to us of God. And that which Moses recorded in the Torah, which God told him to write down, is all about Jesus. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but one great example is Abel. Abel offered a firstling lamb from his flock in sacrifice. And then he offered his own life when his brother killed him. We might say, but where do we know that Abel did that willingly? Didn't Cain surprise him when he murdered him? But the idea of Abel being willing to give the best to God, which he did with his flock, shows his whole heart was devoted to God. And no one in the Old Testament is perfect because it's waiting for Jesus Christ who's perfect. But so many of them point to Jesus' sacrifice. I, I mean that Abel's death being killed by his brother out in the field, which means out of the city, outside the city. And he's the good shepherd. Abel's the good shepherd. It's all pointed to Jesus. But the fact that Abel slaughtered a lamb before his own self-sacrifice, even that is a prefiguration of the sacrifice that Abel would make. Even in Abel's own life, there's a prefiguration of his sacrifice. 
And of course, it gets much better with his self-sacrifice and then infinitely better with the self-sacrifice of Jesus. And if we look at Abraham and Isaac, that Abraham gave something that was more dear than his own life. He, he was ready to give his son. So that's even more to him. Um, David was willing to die at the hands of Saul rather than raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, which is also about how the church should treat the Jews. Mm. We, we can't harm them or do an injustice to them. But um, David becomes the king of the, who has the eternal throne, where Saul lost the covenant. Because he tried to offer sacrifice that he wasn't deputed to give, and Samuel said, right, you've, you're going to lose the throne for this. And this points ahead to the Jews not fulfilling the old covenant with love, but by crucifying Christ, it was fulfilled in a way they didn't expect, but then he becomes the one who inherits the eternal throne. I just mean that in the Old Testament, there's so many prefigurations, but they're never the completeness. There's always just one element missing or more. But the church fathers teach us how Christ is on every single page, said St. Augustine, pretty much. And the more you look, the more you find, because God is the one source of truth. And it's that parabolic shape of salvation history, which is has been so eclipsed today, this understanding, that correct understanding of God's order of providence that today is denuded and so we're deprived of whole regions of meaning from holy scripture and in reading your works i i really felt like those disciples coming back from emmaus saying didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures for us and that is the that is proper to the the priesthood that that is the 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 food the meat that that they should be giving to the faithful. So I certainly find that within your your works. And perhaps we can look at your first volume on the conversion the Jews promised in the Old Testament, look at some of those typological patterns. Perhaps we can begin by looking at what uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talked about with regard to Genesis, uh, mm. the Genesis being the story of of two brothers, being a story of a sibling rivalry. So perhaps you can sketch, uh, you mentioned there Abel and Cain, but a couple of the other fraternal relationships there and how they represent the church and synagogue in history. Yeah, it, it is a joy to find Jesus Christ anywhere and therefore to find him on the pages of scripture, especially when you've read them again and again and again and not found him, which is my experience and I think most people, and then to find him. And it's the same as looking at nature. Um, it, it's incredible that we can become jaded looking at nature, whereas the, the, just the fact of existence should blow our minds away. Or to see the, the stars or the sun, um, which is speaking of Jesus Christ and the saints. Um, and that everything has this depth of meaning because it's come from God in an orderly way to, to point to one end. So with Genesis, in fact, the whole Torah, it's amazing how much it is all about brothers. And I wouldn't have noticed this if the rabbis hadn't said it. So the rabbis are telling us something useful, but they're removing the best part, which is Christ. Mm. 
And that's why exegesis has been crippled because the church is accommodating herself to Judaism's view of how we read the scriptures, which they can't stand the spiritual meaning because it's all about Jesus Christ and the church. So they insist that it's it's about the letter. You can examine the the text for um, textual criticism. What's the authentic text? Although they'll insist that the Torah they have is all to the jot and tittle perfect. Um, or or you can walk, talk about the history of what was happening and how this text was formed, but they don't want us to look to the spiritual meaning. How much of the Torah is about brothers? So from Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, and soon after that we have Noah and his sons, and it stresses about the elder and the younger um, with, with the three of them. Then we have... Abraham with the brothers, then Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, right to the end of Genesis, and then Moses and Aaron for the rest of the Torah. In fact, it's it's very much concerned with brothers and this fratricide of between Cain and Abel that we see in a hostility um, of, for example, Esau toward Jacob. He hated him, wanted to kill him. But nevertheless, uh, God said that the elder shall serve the younger. So the rabbis will say that they, the Jewish people, are represented by Jacob and the people of the world by the Gentiles. And I suppose you could say that the Jewish people came into being after the Gentiles. Some would say it begins with Abraham. Others began at Mount Sinai. That's when the Hebrew people were born. And so they're the younger brother, and the Gentiles are the elder brother. Um, so Esau, who, who's this worldly, murderous man, more interested in filling his belly than inheriting the promises of God. But Christianity is born after Judaism. Jacob points to Jesus Christ. And when his mother had him put on Esau's skins that he got from hunting. And so he inherited the blessing and despoiled his elder brother of the inheritance. This is what happened with the crucifixion. Jesus putting on humanity and taking on our sin is symbolized in Jacob, the younger brother, putting on their goat skins. The hair, the church fathers say, symbolizes death, and the skins symbolize sacrifice because there's been an animal killed for it, and he's disguised in our humanity so that when his father Isaac looked at him, or in fact when he smelt him, because he smelt the aroma of the field, which the rabbis again say is actually the aroma of paradise, of Eden. So, But this, this means that Jesus has the sense of heaven, the true heaven, but he's putting on our sin and inherits the blessing from the father that when Esau complained and said, give me the blessing, I want a blessing, don't you have one left? And his, his father said, no, I've, I've given it to Jacob. There isn't another. But he, he gave Esau a, what I'd say is a natural blessing, a blessing for natural goods, not the supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, this speaks to the church and the synagogue um, where the synagogue is very focused on the goods of this world. They want a political messiah, bringing a political peace. 
they consider wealth as a sign of God's blessing, as many Protestants will. Um, not understanding Jesus said that the wealth he, wa he wants us to store up is treasure in heaven through acts of charity and sacrifice. It's a much greater wealth. It's an eternal wealth that isn't going to rust, that the moths can't eat it. Um, and so Rabbi Sachs wants to say that Jacob represents the synagogue and Esau, the Gentiles, and that we Gentiles shouldn't fear this. We can all live under the Noahide laws while they will live under the covenant uh, of Moses. Um, but the Noahide laws are frightening. It's a totalitarianism. Um, and God wants one covenant for one people. It's the new covenant, which is eternal. I'm trying to recall about the law of non-contradiction, which Rabbi Sachs kind of discounts so that he can say there's a universal covenant, the Noahide, for all of us, and this special covenant of for the chosen ones. But he's trying to say to us, uh, don't, Fear this inequality, you're also kind of chosen. But you're not if there's a covenant for the chosen and then one for everybody else. And this misunderstanding of what it means to be chosen, if it's not understood, Jesus is the, the Messiah, the chosen one, and he suffered a crucifixion. It, it's a in this life, it's a burden. And his service as Lord and King of Kings, he washed the feet of his disciples. But if you think being chosen means that you can lord it over other people, the almost ultimate expression of that is exactly what we're seeing happening in the Gaza Strip now. A genocidal campaign to wipe them out because they are considered lesser beings. That the, the rabbis for centuries have been teaching that the Jewish souls come from God, divine sparks, and the Gentiles are something created by a different God or a demiurge or basically Satan. Um, now, not every Jew believes that, but it's somewhere on the spectrum of believing they're a superior kind of being. And it, I think the protestations of people say, oh, that, that's not true. We'll just look at history. Mm. It demonstrates it. it. It all comes back to our Lord's disputations with the Pharisees and Sadducees in particularly the Gospel of John, where they boast about being the, the seed of Abraham. And yeah, and St. Thomas says they, they're counting this noble birth in the flesh without having regard to the spirit. And, you know, they say we've never been slaves to anyone. And Jesus is talking about being free from sin and since original sin we've all been slaves to it and now if you just argue about Jacob and Esau it might be unclear which one represents the people or the Jews or which represents the Jews and the Christians but because it's compounded all the way from Cain and Abel Ishmael and Isaac Jacob and Esau um, Joseph and his brothers I mean Joseph is so clearly a prefiguration of Jesus who, whose brothers want to kill him. They're envious of him because of his visions, because of what he knows of God in the future, that they will bow down to him. Um, and because the father loves him above them, well, clearly this is about Jesus. He's the beloved, the beloved son. And if your reaction to that is jealousy or envy, 
how bizarre in the case of Jesus Christ, who everything he did was perfect. Um, and then it, it continues with Moses and Aaron and even Pharaoh and Zara uh, struggling. Um, and, and God says the, the elder will serve the younger. The pattern of them all is definitely speaks of the synagogue as elder and the church as the younger brother, um, which ends in a reconciliation, by the way. God protected Cain, saying whoever harms Cain will suffer sevenfold. He protected Ishmael, went out to him in the desert so that he, his mother could find water for him. Of Esau, he warned Jacob, you know, centuries later through the prophets, don't try and take Esau's land from him. I've given it to him, Edom. You won't be able to take it. Um, and Joseph did more than protect his brothers. He he fed them and very cleverly arranged their examination of conscience, repentance, and reconciliation, which is what Christ will do with the Jews. They will realize that this figure, um, Joseph, whom they didn't recognize, finally said, that's our brother. That's our younger brother who we thought we killed. And they'll, the Jews will see that in Jesus Christ. They thought they killed him. Well, they did, but he's the son of God. He rose from rose from the death. So it's, it's the whole pattern through not just the Torah, but all the, the, the prophets and the, the writings and the historical books. David and Saul is another. We touched on prefiguration of the, the new covenant and the old. So Saul's daughter, Michal, I think I heard Kennedy Hall mention this. It's just a detail I'd overlooked, but it's beautiful. She's the daughter of the king, and she ends up marrying David to become the bride of the king. So you see the old covenant, she, she then leaves Saul's house to live with David as bride. So the daughter of Zion becomes the bride of Christ. There's such an elevation. And David wouldn't harm Saul when he had opportunities to kill him. So that it's um, the church has taught this consistently. Christians shouldn't harm the Jews. Um, but we need to be aware of the envy and the hatred of Christ. And that the Old Testament shows us that, and then the New Testament puts it in black and white. I've been reading The City of God recently, and as you know, St. Augustine very much stresses there that the city of God, the, sorry, the city of the earth, the earthly city, the city of man, is characterized by its carnality and its orientation to the flesh and the world rather than as opposed to the city of god's orientation to the spirit and of course that's you know saint augustine wrote extensively against the manichaeans against the errors of gnosticism but it strikes me that th that separation that saint augustine describes is very much in mind and present in your works if you believe moses you talked about esau and he's red and he's hungry and he's hairy and I think at its very worst, uh, Jewish anti-Christian teaching and thought, as seen, for example, in the Kabbalah, is very much focused on these world, on means of acquiring wealthy power. People wonder about the, the so-called secrets of the Kabbalah and secrets of Freemasonry. And there's a lot of grandiloquent language about initiation into these 
these great secrets, but really what they come down to are just means of acquiring material and temporal power. Things like compound interest, sexual um, manipulation and blackmail, how to deceive people, how to play language games and manipulate language, all these different tools uh, by which today the the oligarchy control the world. And so, as you say there, this enmity that exists in the older brother towards the younger brother is something we see foreshadowed very strongly in the Old Testament. And then we see, of course, with the conspiracy, which leads to the the execution of of our Lord, the the enmity towards the, the incarnation, the church being the continuation of the incarnation in history as the mystical body of Christ. Of course, there is going to be that enmity towards towards the mystical body, towards Christ, uh, continuing through history. And you very much evidence that in volume two of If You Believe Moses. It's because there's a spiritual priority in everything but after god made the angels who all participate in different degrees in his nature um and then he has another way of making many more creatures by creating matter which a form can unite with and our soul for each of us is the form united with our body which is the matter the serpent or lucifer thought he was due all this power of a created world but he um, wanted glory for himself and resented that a woman would be given more honor than him, a creature that was embodied, that had matter, which he thought is below his high station. And so his lies to Adam and Eve have continued all the way through to the crucifixion and ever since. Um, and he's, I think, trying, he wants to deny the spiritual truth, which is proclaimed by matter, by saying that matter is the end of the story. The material world is enough. Yeah, so that you want to acquire material wealth, material worldly status. And he, he promised Jesus, you know, that he'd give him all the lands of the earth if he would fall down and worship him. And there's every reason to think he could actually grant that power to whoever does worship him. Jesus rejected the temptation because it's his by right anyway, and he, he will have it by self-sacrifice and charity, not by worshiping Satan and his murderous uh, and using his murderous lies. So I think the lie is so strong, right? People are afraid of criticizing Judaism. They've, everybody knows you're going to be called an anti-Semite and very soon you're going to be written off. But if as Catholics, we believe that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and that nothing builds civilization up so well as adoring the crucified. That, and that's the truth of it. That seeing the spiritual truth that God took on flesh, allowed us to crucify him in order to redeem us from sin. This love is ineffable. Now it's amazing. Every day we should be contemplating this. And that changes us by his grace because you can't help but be grateful to the benevolent God who's died to save you from hell. And that changes how we treat other people. It changes how we think of the past, that we, we see how 
amazing are all those who participated in bringing this to us, not just the scholastics and church fathers and early martyrs and apostles, but all through the Old Testament. Um, if it's true, which as Catholics we must believe, that adoring the crucified builds up civilization, there's different people can join the dots for us, then rejecting the crucified is very, very destructive of society. The, the devil can't build anything. Evil can't build anything, never has. But the church builds things up, then the enemy comes and takes them over, poisons them. So the institution of marriage, for example, which has been, it's a natural good, which Jesus elevated to a sacrament. Um, and then the lie comes in that this is about sexual gratification, not about children, and then you end up with homo marriage. Um, it, in fact, it doesn't end there. It gets, it, it's just going to keep degenerating until we return to Christ. Um, or the universities, which used their creation of the church, coming from the cathedral schools, are wonderful places for searching for truth. And what they did between 1200 and 1500, amazing. But universities now are genuinely dangerous places to send your children, really dangerous. They have The children have to be so on guard um, and with a good network to come through intact. Um, and the, the seminaries, which after the Council of Trent, it became more formal how a seminary would be organized. And, and yet now they're, they're places of, in many places, abuse and deformation. Um, so, I mean, the, we're naive if we think the enemy isn't raging with all the cunning he can to destroy that which Christ came to give, to build up the city of God, to give us eternal life. The devil hates that, and he's not less active now than he ever was. But he's this serpent, right, who hides and slithers and lies. So th there are um, Gnostics today who talk of the wisdom of the serpent as something positive. They, they want us to learn from him about hiding your true intentions and drawing people in with a lie. Because if you just told them your intentions are to separate them from God, no one's going to fall for that. Mm -hmm. But our, our world, like as Dr. Haugen wrote in Pursuit of the Metaverse, it's presenting us with a massive lie about pretty much everything. And it's the, the church, tradition, the scriptures, which give us the truth. And if we're deaf to them, people can ask themselves, do I read the scriptures every day? Do I go to the traditional liturgy? If you don't, where are you getting the truth? Mm. Yeah. It, obviously, it's not enough just to go to the ritual mass and read read the Bible every day. That's not enough. But if we're not doing these things, we're in the cause of the, the enemy. Yes, it, your works have a very helpful definition of what is a Jew. And as you've sort of implied there, it is based on, it is a theological understanding based on the person's attitude towards 
the incarnation of the Logos towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really central to your whole to your whole thesis, because I find that today there are really sort of two major, the, the two key doctrines with regard to the Jews, which formed the adversus Judeos theology, which is the church's traditional teaching on the Jews, namely supersessionism, so a rejection of, of dual covenant theology and recognising that the new covenant has superseded and fulfilled the old covenant. That's the first teaching which is so often obviated at best today and at worst outright denied. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is acknowledgement of the enmity of the synagogue towards the church that that is what the jewish identity is centered on a rejection of christ mm -hmm. and i think that today we're seeing that that first omitted teaching is being more and more addressed which is good to see but the second teaching is still highly taboo and guarded against by the judeo-masonic oligarchy and there are all sorts of sort of psychological mind control techniques to avoid uh, any kind of acknowledgement here but even among traditional catholics it strikes me that the people who doubt the importance for example of jewish identity in rejecting christ it reflects of even it implies even if they don't actually have it it implies a very low christology as if one's attitude towards the logos incarnate has not always defined every man's very identity and life so your thesis draws out these cosmic implications of rejecting Christ, which reflects a very high Christology. And we need a Christology that is just as high as our theology. So today, the clergy seem to often espouse a very lowly and and uh, a very lowly theology rather than the, the traditional lofty spiritual theology, which takes primacy overall. Yet Jesus taught us love your enemy. How can you love your enemy if you say, I have no enemies? Right. And St. Stephen put it into practice. Even they were stoning him to death. He was praying for their, that they be forgiven, taking the example of Christ. And that's how the early church set so many examples of this love of one's enemy, praying for their conversion. And yet the, if you reject Jesus Christ and reject his teaching, People project what's inside themselves. They think, what would they like to do to their enemy? And Benjamin Netanyahu is showing us. Treat them like Amalek. Wipe them out, every man, woman, and child, including their beasts. And this is what you do with your enemy if you have a carnal mindset, that this world is all there is, that the land we promised is this soil. Um, and if that's what you think about how you should treat your enemy, then of course after the lie of multiculturalism, which is engineered, you, you have to stamp out the concept of an enemy. You have to, oh, we're not enemies. We're not enemies. We're all friends at all costs, which is a lie, actually, because the enemy is using that to destroy all culture. In fact, I, I want to read a quote later from Naam Goldman, I think, 1915, talking about how the mission of the Jewish people is to destroy everything so they can build a new culture. Mm. And he, he literally says... Uh, uh, um, Noam Goldman, 915, he's in Germany. He's completely taken with the German military spirit. He loved it, having come from Russia, but then he went 
he got a shock with what the Germans did and went over to New York and founded the Zionist Congress. He said, the first task of our time is destruction. All social strata and social formations created by the old system must be annihilated. Individuals must be torn from their ancestral milieus. No tradition can be considered sacred anymore. The slogan is, what was must go. Now, this is actually happening. We're seeing it happening that people are torn from their ancestral milieu, that the old, say the institute of marriage, goes. No tradition can be considered sacred. Look what's happened to our traditional liturgy. And that we have the U.S. bishops telling Christians, Catholics, to go to Seder males. Um, the plan that they laid out that they think is their messianic mission is being achieved. So the enemy is at work. And the reason we're not supposed to say it is because people think that we will treat our enemy as Amalek was treated. But we're meant to understand even Amalek in a spiritual way as sin in our soul. We're meant to eradicate sin. It's a spiritual fight, not against flesh and blood. So it has its meaning. But if we don't understand the spiritual meaning of the scriptures, that the promised land is heaven, it's the church, that the enemy is the devil and sin, if we treat it in a flesh and blood way, then that's why we have the genocide going on in Gaza, and which will continue because of mammon, money rules. Um, maybe I won't say too much, but I don't think we're going to see interventions there, not just because America is controlled by Jewish interests, but even Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Lebanon, Iran are very afraid of upsetting the bankers, basically. And mm. um, so they're going to be very slow to protect their brothers in Palestine. Um, I might be drifting away here. There's the enmity, which is very real. And only if you follow Jesus Christ, can we dare to acknowledge the enmity is real. But because we have been forgetting Christ and the martyrs and tradition and thinking we can have a comfortable world in this world and all live alongside each other uh, in a neutral way, well, that's, that's a lie. It can only happen by dethroning Christ. Mm -hmm. Only when he's dethroned can you have multiculturalism. But if he is acknowledged as king of kings and praised and worshipped by a society, then the Protestants or the Muslims or the Jews, they're not going to be harmed by that society. They, they will be protected by it. It's the, the best possible situation for them. Um. But the enemy is laying out the terms rather than because we've dethroned Christ. Um, but it, I think when you read that that quotation, that satanic quotation from Goldman there, that very much evinces Kabbalistic cosmology with this idea of the Kepitor, the, the, the divine sparks, the vessels, uh, being shattered and this tikkun olam this this uh, jewish messianic project mm -hmm. to break down what we'd recognize as the platonic forms to to then reconstitute them uh as part of this this project adam kadmon this new world order and yeah. as i say the actual testimony of history bears out the ongoing 
success and acceleration of this project. And it is through the solvent, as you say, of liberalism in the strict sense, that is indifference, public and political indifference to the divine revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ as mm. the ultimate the ultimate standard uh, and basis of public policy and pol uh, public law, which has been the undoing of Christendom and been achieved through the apostasy of the nations, the apostasy of the Gentile nations. That is how this, this messianic project has advanced. Before you throw out another thread, because there are so many, if, um, maybe I should uh, hear what you're going to say and then I'll... I've got, I don't want to forget to talk about the law. Please, yes, because I was going to mention a, a very big one, so I think that can wait. Part of the reason why we must find Christ through all the Torah in Adam's deep sleep or Genesis 3 about the seed of the woman crushing Satan's head or finding that our holy mass goes all the way back to the beginning of creation in its preparation um, is so we understand the spiritual sense of the law. I had someone comment on my channel recently that I was saying there's no such thing as Judeo-Christian because they disagree about the crucifixion, which, which is massive. And people rightly said you can't blame Jews born today for the crucifixion simply because they're born Jews. Well, of course not. And no one ever really, no one of sense said that you could. But once you, you don't, we inherit original sin through um, just being born of Adam. You don't inherit the sin of rejecting Christ until you reach the age of reason and subscribe to it one way or the other. And if having reached the age of reason, you are indifferent to the crucifixion or approve it or hate or resent Jesus, that's how you connect yourself with the generation that crucified him. Mm -hmm. That's why everyone has this choice. And Judaism is the rejection of Christ. So they have these different degrees of, as St. John wrote, if you hate your brother who you see you cannot love the god you don't see and jesus is the brother that we see as joseph asked his brothers do you have a father do you have a brother and they had to talk to him about the past or oh, we had this brother but he disappeared and they realized they made him disappear so he, joseph has challenged them to think about their father and their brother that's what jesus does on the cross make us think who is our brother and therefore who is the father god and yet they don't want to go there. They don't want to go there. And if they do, they resent Jesus because he is the Messiah. He is spreading his arms around the whole world, building a house of God for all nations, the church. And they want to say that Israel is the Messiah. The Jewish people are the promised Messiah, which is psychotic to think so much of yourself that you're made to, to rule the world according to your program. Whereas the apostles are made to rule the world according to God's program, which is service and self-sacrifice, not domination. So the law, this guy saying we have a Judeo-Christian culture because they have the Ten Commandments, we have the Ten Commandments. No, they misunderstand the whole Torah. They search the scriptures looking for Christ and don't recognize him. So what did they do? What did Jesus do with the Ten Commandments? He reduced them to two. Love, love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. And he said the second one's like it. So it's a simplicity because it's a spiritual truth. Everything coming from the one spirit that is God. And then having a multiple expressions in creation. But he reduces the commandments. 
to simplicity. The Jews multiply them and say there's 613 commandments in the Torah that you have to keep. And 613 is not enough for them. So for millennia, the, the rabbis have been having the Jewish communities follow so many laws that no one can possibly know them all. The Talmud just grows and grows and grows with layers of commentary upon the Torah, people making things up, and it becomes impossible for anyone to even know what's there, never mind to be able to judge. So the Jewish understanding of law, it ends up something that rejects the divine law, has contempt for natural law, hence so many of the sexual revolution has Jewish roots in the 20s and 30s. Um, and, and then we have legal positivism, where whatever is declared by the lawgiver to be law is supposedly law, where it's not. If it doesn't serve the common good, if it's not rational, it's not a law, as St. Thomas would teach. So we end up with the COVID nightmare because a lot of Christians believe that what the government says, what the leader says, must be law, must be obeyed. And in the same time, the nightmare of traditionalist custodis, where because Francis has put something out on paper and signed it, people think, well, that's a law and it has to be obeyed. Mm. Even though both fail and they do not serve the common good, they're absolutely disastrous, murderous, and physically or spiritually. And then as for not be, being irrational, for being, how can anyone believe that the Pope, whose job it is to uphold tradition, has the authority to try to eradicate it? The, the Pope has, his meaning is as a successor of St. Peter. He has to be in continuity with all those other Popes. And if he's rupturing that continuity, he, he's He's not serving the mission from God. He's serving the world, the prince of this world. In fact, that's why I wrote this whole series of books, because COVID tried to keep us out of mass, and then Francis tried. And this can't be a coincidence. It's, it's remarkable, amazing that they should happen at the same time. And I believe that it's the same forces behind them, which is this Judaic messianic alternative to Jesus Christ. And even Francis is serving that, not because he's a mason or he's going to adopt rituals, but because he formed by the Jesuits and Talat de Chardin is his lodestar, and he believes all this guff from the world um, instead of having a deep love and respect for the life that comes through tradition. So I very went, much went on a diversion there. Uh, but I think law is basically, lawyers are destroying the world. Hmm. There's too many. You need a few lawyers, a few good laws, and then judges who are willing to actually judge. That's how it was set up with Moses on the mountain with God. And you, you, the judge needs to make a, a judgment call. He can't just have recourse to a written law to do it. Because you will, the, the, the letter can never cover all the possibilities of the spirit. Never can. At some point, the spirit has to kick in, aligning itself with God. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Very much. And I find that it's a, it's a modern, among Catholics as well, a modern superstition and preference for written contracts and written laws and, and sharply delineated solutions codified. 
but what we're actually called to do is is internalize the law the law of grace to be regenerated through grace mm-hmm. and so catholics today that look for uh, that solution and avoid the fact that to a certain extent we are all children of the revolution we're all participate or we have at least in our past participated in this great modern apostasy mm-hmm. and so what are we doing today to omit what are we doing to omit the gospel parts of the gospel today the apostles are hiding for fear of the jews and mm-hmm. so paul says be not ashamed of the gospel be not ashamed of the cross the centrality of the cross today being omitted and in your book uh, if you believe moses volume two you touch on this kind of replacement theology that's happened the ontology of sacrifice every civilization has a culture which is in turn based on a cultus which is in turn based on a sacrifice and all culture unfolds under the sign of its legitimating sacrifice christendom flowed from our lord's side on calvary and i speak in and i'm sure you have as well speak to people who remember even england before the sexual revolution so this is england in the in the last days of a very defective um and very reduced protestant biblical culture but even that they say was the society then was was so gentle and so neighborly in a way today that you just can't really find anywhere and that was in the 1950s can we imagine how how human and true and good and beautiful society was in the high middle ages under mm. a sacramental social order not yeah. that it was perfect of course but there's been so much disparagement and slander and black legends created about the christian social order but what we have today is this post second world war order when in a certain sense the the elevation of auschwitz has replaced the cross as the worst thing that ever happened and this is very much prominent in the minds of the hierarchy it would seem yes so straight after even before the end of world war 2 there were zionists saying they lay the blame for this at the feet of the whole christian world and they believe because of their um in a psychosis that all gentiles hate them and want to wipe them out they think antisemitism is real in that it's everywhere now there is an antisemitism which is wicked um but it's not in the minds or hearts of of most gentiles who just want to get on with their life they're not bothered about these big big picture things it's not natural for a human being to want to have a, a global plan anyway um but to marvel at the global plan of christ which goes through all centuries so after auschwitz then there were even priests like father gregory baum saying this is a a wound to the christian conscience how could they do this thing um and so now we have in the last week a german cardinal saying that mass migration is a deliberate plan to destroy peoples which it is and he said that very well 
but you can bet he can't say whose deliberate plan it is. It's a, it's a Jewish plan. There have been so many Jewish administrators and politicians bragging about this because because the, they don't have Christ, because they won't ascend the mountain that is Christ. They're charging around the bottom, going from one extreme to another. So they'll promote nationalism, which they did all through the 1800s. This is the big thing. And then it turns out to be a disaster for them by overheating nationalism with their the Nazis. Um, and so they, they're then stressing internationalism, communism, the global order, because they, they can't see that how Christ can harmonize a truly global order that is spiritual, but allowing the political to be particular nation by nation or family by family, instead of trying to take children away from their parents or say the state has the right to educate the parent, the children, not the parents. Um, all this is breaking down the, the natural order of what's particular because they're rejecting the one spirit that can organize the whole. So the, I, the mass migration is a way of controlling nations by destroying them. It hurts the countries that lose their young men and it hurts the countries they come to because you can't have a, a harmonious culture there. Um, and it's done, I think, out of hatred of the nations. It's revenge on the nations. It's this feeling we lost our land for 2,000 years. We're going to take land off everybody. No one's going to have land. And just as they regain the Israel, um, they're not satisfied with their own teachings of multiculturalism and that free migration it's the most absurd controlled system my migration exists in that anyone who can claim to be Jewish from anywhere in the world has the rights of citizenship there. But th there've been, I think, Arabs even born there who left who can't come back. How does that work? So, and it's a very intolerant society there. So they lost their temple and their altar and their sacrifice and their priesthood and their ephod, as Prophet Hosea said. Um, and it's, But in the end, they will search for David their king and return. And all this, David the king is Jesus Christ. And the altar and the sacrifice and the priesthood are there in the apostolic liturgy. And they will recognize it as the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice. But until then... Those that are spiritually awake, but unfortunately to the dark side, they're aware how powerful is the sacrifice, the Christian holy mass. And that's always been a target of attack. So Protestantism, Protestantism is basically a mix of resentful, ambitious Catholics with Judaism. So they leave the church to take on this worldly teaching, then reject the place of Mary, the mother of God, of so many of the sacraments, of the mass, of the priesthood. And they that's why so many Protestants say you started out with all these Old Testament names, and they think they know the Old Testament, but they're reading it without Christ. Um, and they don't have the sacrifice. They don't have the altar. They don't have the priesthood. Even the Anglicans, they don't have the priesthood, though many of them think, think they have. Um, but how can it be that, you, as an Anglican, some of you think you have the real presence but most Anglicans don't even come 
to that kind of service. How can that be one religion? But the, the Jews want their altar and sacrifice. They want to rebuild it in Jerusalem. Even, I think, not many of them would articulate it like that. But there's always been this desire to return. And the Muslims are in the way at the moment on the Temple Mount, so they can't rebuild the temple. But they, this sacrifice, whatever is going to be offered there in that spot, by whatever accommodation, um, is the opposite to Holy Mass. The, the, the Mass has never ceased. It never will until right at the end. And it'll be about that time that the alternative sacrifice is offered on the Temple Mount by the Antichrist, um, and that's, well, it's obscure how many will bow down to that out of fear, but what does the triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart mean? And God has foreseen all this coming. So, And we began with Moses 5, if you believe Moses, you believe me. And Jesus says, I've come, and um, the Father sent me, and you don't accept me, but if one comes in his own name, him you will accept. That's the Antichrist who comes claiming himself as the the fullness and the answer, the solution. Um, and he, it will be Jerusalem, where, again, we've had many Jews for decades and decades saying Jerusalem will be the world capital and not just having a police force and a political federation, but a shrine to the prophets, I think, I think it was Ben Gorion that said that a shroud to the prophets for all religions. And mm. um, so we see this coalescing of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Um, but it will be it will be controlled by the devil worshiping worldly forces. They the devil worshippers know that a sacrifice brings power, and if they can offer an inversion of the holy mass and something more valuable than animals to sacrifice children in a consecrated space, perhaps, is the worst inversion, then they get immense power from Satan from that. Nothing that any Catholic should fear because it, it doesn't compare to God's power, but it is this worldly power. And Jesus said, don't fear who can kill the body but cannot touch the soul. Fear him who can send both to Gehenna. So, However much worldly power they amass, and through whatever revolting means they get it, even if they're a tiny minority within the world, they they will have power over those who think with the world, who who aren't um, alive in Christ. There does seem to be, as Will Tucker's expressed it, this dialectical battery between the left side of the world order which is as you say promoting this sort of abrahamic religions braiding this synthesis on the one hand and on the right side of the world order this growing promotion of the noahide laws and the idea of this global code that we that all great religions can uh, subsist under but i'm glad there that father you've spoken of the the Holy Mass, the liturgy. I'm conscious of your time, so I might now move on to that unless there was anything else that you wanted to add. Just very briefly, looking at the Holy Land now, there is no solution apart from Jesus Christ. What 
Netanyahu wants is to drive out all the Palestinians, get rid of them all. That is just such a miserable, if the world allows that, how miserable is history? Or what Hamas want is to kill all the Jews. And if that were to happen, how miserable, what a failure is the human project. Um, but a ceasefire is not a solution either, because then you just have these endless non-discussions about a two-state solution, which means the Jews oppressing the Palestinians um, and then occasional terrorist attacks, which is also miserable. There's only Jesus Christ as a solution here that men have to accept. He's the Lord. Uh, he's the King of Kings. He teaches self-sacrifice and forgiveness of your enemy um, without being naive and being a, a, a doormat to them. That's the only solution. And so uh, perhaps this anticipates, if you're going to ask about the liturgy, we Catholics have everything in our hands that we can do for this. Everything. We just got to do it. And it's so easy. It's so easy. But I'll I'll wait for your question. Yeah, so I'd like to discuss what Catholics can do because there are very um, helpful pointers in your in your works for both lay and clerical Catholics. But firstly, just on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, some things that I, I learned from your works, which were highly elucidating on the symbolism of the ordering of the, the altar and how this speaks of the, the final conversion of the Jews. Perhaps you could say something to our viewers about that. Well, in the traditional Mass, the, the Missal starts on the Epistle side, what appears to be the right of the cross, and it is carried across in procession to the Gospel side on the left for the Gospel and the Canon of the Mass and the sacrifice. But at the end, it's carried back to the Epistle side for the communion, post-communion, for the close of the Mass. Um, and this doesn't happen the Novus Ordo, which means they've lost what, what this means in that the movement of the missile from south to north always meant the gospel being proclaimed to the whole world with the coming of Christ, sending his apostles, so, which is what the deacon represents, which is why he sings the gospel to the north, liturgical north, and why the priest will even have the missile at a 45-degree angle or so on that side of the altar, because it's symbolizing going out to the whole world. But in the end, it's carried back where it began, which is the Jewish side of the altar. So the word of God uh, begins with the Jews, goes across to the world, and then the, the sacrifices happens. And, but then it's carried back to the Jews for, for the close of the, the mass, which is also the close of history. And the candles are lit first on the epistle side, then the gospel side, and extinguished first on the gospel side, then the epistle side, which means the light of the truth of the word begins with the Jews, then is carried over to the world, but goes out with the world, which is the apostasy, and is seen last remaining with the Jews. Maybe right at the end, they will be the faithful generation when they convert. Um, so in every single mass, this movement with the missile, which is a big deal, the procession in a pontifical mass or a solemn mass, you know, the, the, the missile is accompanied by acolytes and the thurifers. But even a, a little altar boys, you know, one priest was telling me as an altar boy, he dropped the missile because he was tiny and the missiles are big and heavy and he couldn't manage. 
It's really sad. The priest got angry with him. They said, well, he's, he's a little boy. He shouldn't have been doing that job, perhaps, if he couldn't quite carry it out. That's why you don't want five-year-olds serving at the altar. Mm. Um, but it, and as, as a seven-year-old, it is a big, heavy thing to carry across. But it, it has to be done as part of the Mass. And how many, when that man service, I see them light the candles on the gospel side first. People would say, oh, it's no big deal. What does it matter? I would nearly always tell them the sacristy afterwards. I'd say, what? why don't you want the Jews to convert? And they'd say, what do you mean? And I'd say, well, you're, you're breaking the sign. But I, I'm joking. What I mean is this: these things happen and they have meaning so that once every four years it will come up and you tell the story and we remind each other why we do that. Or it might even be the meaning of a ceremony is forgotten for 300 years. But we still do it because that's the way it was done. And some liturgist will dig it out of the spiritual books from the Middle Ages and remind us why we do something. So this, this movement of the missile in the Mass speaks of the conversion of the Jews in the end times. And the, why the Novus Ordo, you think, oh, it's unfortunate that they simplified it. Is it unfortunate or is it a diabolical destruction, as Noam Goldman said, of all traditions? Nothing can be considered sacred anymore. We will destroy the old before we build up the new. And they never build up the new. They just destroy. Because mm -hmm. uh, you can never get past the destruction side. If that's your program, if you're evil, you don't know how to build. What builds is love. What builds is adoring the crucified, imitating him. And, and yeah, keeping our traditions. These things matter. Yeah. You say there's scripture and tradition. Just mm -hmm. that symbol alone, as central as it is, the movement of the on, on the altar there. Of the and it's why Protestantism, I can't even say the word, but that's not a problem. It fails. And this emphasis on the letter fails. It has to be the spirit so that a seven-year-old is truly participating in handing on the faith. If he's attentive and he does it like he was told, and maybe he lights the candles in the wrong order five times, why not, you know? But if he's gently corrected each time, and when he's old enough, it's explained to him why we do this, he will do it right. I I've said as well in the book about how a two-year-old at mass is helping pass on tradition. Because when you have two-year-olds in there, people have hope that there's a future generation. And if it's the letter, you have to learn how to read, and then you have to become people think you have to be an expert in the scriptures maybe you learn latin or greek or something and argue endlessly over the grammar of it as if that the secrets and truths of salvation are locked into the grammar there's something useful and good there but it's not salvation salvation is something the life of christ is something that literally everybody can pass on through tradition and because we we just have to turn up and and be open and be, give ourselves to it. Whereas if it's something in the books, if it's only theologians and only the experts, you know, people who are academically gifted have their wonderful role for society, but, but they also have their limitations. You, you don't necessarily want your academics carving the altar um, or, or arranging the flowers. Or, 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 and yet, or singing in the scholar, maybe, like Professor Kwinevsky can do both. Um, I just mean there's, there's 
tradition is so broad and encompassing and open to all. And it's much, that's why it complements scripture, which we we can all, to listen to scripture chanted in Latin, drawing a sung mass, is as valuable, I think, as someone who will sit at home and read the gospel in the vernacular. Of course, we want people to read it themselves. But to sit there and hear it chanted in Latin, you're acknowledging before God, this text is like no other text. The missal is carried in ceremony. It's kissed by the celebrant. It is honored with incense. It's ceremoniously chanted in an ancient chant in a language that most of us don't understand. Well, it, it's special. It's like nothing else. And this is honoring the word of God. That's the lesson the liturgy should give us so that people want to go home and say, well, what was that that was chanted? And they'll read the gospel. And they learn to love it so much, they'll read it before the mass. And having, having read it before the mass and meditated on it, then drawing the mass, something will come back to you that God can speak to you because you've prepared your heart for him. And then you want to know the whole of the gospel. And you'll find those parts where Jesus says that he, the, the Psalms and the prophets and the law speaks of him. And you'll see Peter and Paul and all the New Testament authors, they never cease quoting the Old Testament. So you want to read the Old Testament. Um, I'm drifting off again from perhaps talking about the liturgy itself. No, that was excellent. And I mean, the people need to be taught the meanings of all of these elements of the Holy Mass. That's symbol alone of the movement there of the priest, symbolizing the the conversion of the Jews and the, the preaching of the gospel to the whole world, to the Gentiles. That alone should show that there is neutrality of the enmity of the synagogue towards the church in salvation history, let alone all of the magisterial pronouncements that have been made about this. I think, as you know, Father Dennis Fahey wrote about how well, Kabbalah literally means tradition. It means handing on. So the he says the Talmud is like the inversion of scripture, since what the Torah forbids, the Talmud permits. So it's yeah. a commentary which distorts Holy Scripture and how it points to our Lord Jesus Christ. And Kabbalah is an inversion of tradition and the sacraments. Right. And so your it's quite fitting, I think, that your channel is called Scripture and Tradition. You know, everything that that we need to return to for uh, a restoration of of the human element of the church today. Perhaps you might say something on the fruits of Judaizing that are clear in the Novus Ordo Missae. Yeah, and there's something we can all do on Good Friday to, um, I've never used this phrase before, it doesn't quite sound right, but to say to stand with tradition. Um, it sounds like standing with the latest thing. Although because tradition is timeless and eternal, it is the latest thing. It's mm. it's the not stands, the eternal present. I even mean for the Novus Ordo, there's something people can do. And it's it's basically in the traditional mass when we have the great intercessions on good friday there's always been a genuflection for each intercession whether for the church or the pope or the all grades of the church or the secular leaders or the catechumens but not in the prayer for the jews 
And the reason the church has for centuries given is that she doesn't want to associate herself with the mockery of Jesus on Holy Thursday and Good Friday when he, he was mocked as king of the Jews. So that's why we don't genuflect in that prayer. And the Jews have been lobbying since the 20s through the Amici Israel and then in the 60s through the American Jewish Committee um, and got past the 12th to insert the genuflection in 55. And then the, the prayer was being altered more and more until it's been completely watered down. If we want to hold on tradition, do not genuflect in that prayer. Not because you don't care about the Jews, but because you love them and want them to convert. And you don't, most of all, you don't want to associate yourself with the mockery of Jesus. Never again. Do we, we know that our sins have crucified him. And on Good Friday, we bow down and kiss the cross, thinking on this wood, he saved us, he redeemed us, he poured out his blood. And we honor him by bowing down to kiss the cross. But we don't bow down in any way of a mockery of him. And that's why we avoid it in the Good Friday prayer for the Jews. And the reasons given for the change um, is basically to appease these people lobbying the church who say it's anti-Semitism, that St. John and St. Paul are anti-Semites, that the church father are anti-Semites. It's this lie of projecting the inner chaos where one thinks all the world hates me and I hate, I will wipe out my enemies if I have the chance. Well, Christians don't think like that. We just don't think like that unless we're drifting away from Christ. So we don't have to be ashamed of our traditions. And when we're told, no, we've got to genuflect now to show our goodwill to the Jews, does that mean the church never had goodwill to the Jews? If they say a failure to genuflect is a sign of anti-Semitism, do we believe that the church has been anti-Semitic for more than a thousand years? That's a complete, that's a lie against the Holy Spirit. It's a lie against God. We absolutely reject it. It's historical garbage. And when you read the saints and the fathers, even St. John Chrysostom or St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who are accused of it, it's nonsense. They're saving souls, including those of the Jews, if they'll convert. In the Novus Ordo, they have people cry out, crucify him, crucify him. That's the role of the laity when the passion is being read. Mm. That, that These lines by the people are supposed to be said by Catholics in the church. They've been taught to shout out, crucify him on Good Friday. Now, this is so deranged because we've all been told about active participation. You're supposed to participate in mind and heart in the liturgy, which is true, mind and heart. But if you turn that down into something exterior and theatrical, like shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, because you think you're role playing on Good Friday. How can you be understanding in your mind what happened on Good Friday and loving your crucified Savior and at the same time enthusiastically shouting, crucify him? If your heart and mind are in the right place, you will choke up. You wouldn't be able to speak the words or you'll mumble them. But the idea that you can be an actor and shout out the words because there'll be animators there at the Novus Ordo who want you to do it properly and with gusto and everybody join in. Mm. It's the same people who got the crowds on Good Friday to shout crucify him, the same manipulators from the Sanhedrin using fear, the fear of the Jews. So people loved Jesus, but they were afraid to say it because of fear of the Jews, and they didn't dare to speak about him. It's not because they all wanted to crucify him, but they were afraid of this power, this vicious, satanic, God-hating, 
world-grabbing power. And so they shouted, crucify him. And Pilate was thinking, I can't control this crowd. If I don't do what I'm being told to do by the leaders, there's going to be a riot, a rebellion, disorder, and Caesar's going to take my job. Yeah, like take my job off me. We, we all have a part in the crucifixion. But now for Catholics to go to a liturgy on Good Friday, I'll focus it. Don't say crucify him if you're at the Novus Ordo. And if you're at the traditional mass, or for everybody, don't genuflect in the prayer for the Jews. No matter what prayer the priest says, no matter what anyone else does. And this is the beauty of it. In the one, in the traditional liturgy, you just have to stand. You don't have to do anything. Stand. In the Novus Ordo, keep silent. Join the Passion. You just have to keep silent. Isn't it amazing? I think that God has given us way of signaling we want tradition. We want it back and we will do it. And no one can stop us. You don't even have to do anything. In the one case, it's not genuflecting. In the other case, it's not speaking. You know, I, I was in prison in Burma. And it was pretty miserable. You can imagine a prison out there is awful. Um, but there was every morning about 5.30 in the morning, there was half an hour of silence. And believe me, for 23 and a half hours of the rest of the day, there's always noise and quite a lot of it. This silence was beautiful. I know there was a light bulb in myself 24 hours a day. And every now and then there'd be an electricity failure and there'd be darkness. And the darkness was fantastic. It was like a rest for the eyes. So I found myself thanking God for silence and darkness, which is not even a thing. The food I was given was disgusting. But after one month, I loved it. I realized this is life. This is life. What I literally couldn't eat at the beginning, couldn't put it in my mouth. I was, I was eating with such a thanksgiving as I've never, ever matched in my life for this disgusting food, which is life. There was a guy, a major, who was present at my interrogations, which were pretty rough. Um, he's military intelligence, not a nice man. But because I was in solitary confinement, just to see his face every now and then, when I had could see almost no one, it was a joy to see another human being. So I'm thanking God for silence, darkness, disgusting food, and the face of my enemy. This is how good creation is, how good it is to exist, how good life is. And that on Good Friday, which is the highest day in, in, in our liturgy, along with the whole Triton, with Holy Thursday and Easter Sunday, we can testify to all our tradition and our desire for it by standing still and keeping our mouth shut. It's so easy. And if you do that, you might get some funny glances, but afterwards you can talk to people in your parish about it. If half a dozen people do it, the priest might say to them, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? They should never be antagonistic. Don't tell the priest what to do. Tell them why you're doing it. And who knows if in two, three, four years, you'll have 20 people, 50 people not genuflecting. And again, not telling the priest what to do because they have a lot of pressures on them, a lot of things to find out, but they will listen and say, hmm, the people want tradition. And these aren't, they're not haters. 
They don't hate the, the Jews. They want the conversion of the Jews and they want to pray properly for it. But they do hate their own sin and they don't want to ever associate themselves again with crucifying Jesus, which we have done by our sins. And we still sin and we got a confession. But on Good Friday, we know what's coming. It's a liturgy. It's a service. It's the same every year. So we, we can prepare ourselves. Um, and in that context, to shout out crucify him or to genuflect in a, in a way which is basically bowing to the enemies of Christ because they said they want the genuflection. That's why the church has been doing it since 1955, because the Jews want it. We are betraying Christ, betraying ourselves, betraying the Jews, whom we, we're meant to be praying for their conversion then, not, not taking on their narrative. Um, sorry, I've said a lot. Well, it, it's astonishing and so fitting that in a certain sense the the solution to this whole obscuring of the church's teaching on the jews should itself come down to good friday mm -hmm. and the foot of the cross yeah and what all catholics do or don't do at that moment and that, mm -hmm. that could well be as you say where this is turned around i, w I would like to follow up with one thing about the about you know gandhi with his salt march where thousands of people marched to the sea to make salt mm. it was a genius campaign because it's such a simple action which is perfectly according to natural justice that you can make salt to live and he because it took weeks to get there the british couldn't arrest him before because he hadn't actually done anything but it meant thousands and thousands of people joined him until there were hundreds of thousands, and then the British forces couldn't stop them. Mm -hmm. That's how I see this Good Friday action from Catholics. We build up and build up and build up. Which pope or bishop or priest is going to penalize you because you didn't genuflect or you didn't say crucifying? Mm -hmm. They just can't do anything. It's, it's easy, it's simple, it's in our hands. But the heart and mind have to be in the right place, so people shouldn't do this out of a spirit of rebellion against francis or the novus ordo it, it has to be in mind of the crucifixion well father morsey it's been such a rich discussion and i think there are so many points to expand and to revisit and i'd like to do those justice so i think in a future broadcast we can we can talk more about for example the book of tobit about the acts of the apostles and very importantly about our lady as the woman who bridges the covenant. So uh, the covenant on that point of Our Lady, you know, uh, Zephyrah, who is Moses's wife, her name means bird, I think, in Hebrew, but also means beautiful. So I'm thinking, who's this this creature that's beautiful, that is as if winged like like an angel? Um, although Mary is not an angel, she's much, much more queen of angels mm. and the most beautiful. But the, yes, the way Zephyrah saved the day um, is a very short few verses in Exodus, but it's all about, again, the conversion of the Jews, thanks to Our Lady. Breaking open the, the treasures of Holy Scripture. So as we uh, draw our discussion, our interview to a close here, Father, um, just reflecting on something that Bishop Williamson said, that if we lack 
faith, faith and, and fervor for our own tradition, then the Jews will not respect us. And this posture that the, the human and the church has largely adopted through coercion, through fear, through bribery, has the church in a, in a dreadful bind. The, the synagogue has wrestled the church in a submission at the moment. And I see with your works, the be- one of the, the small buds of the beginning of spring here, the future fruits of, of a recovery of the church's doctrine here and eventually the conversion of the Jews. So I'd like to invite your concluding thoughts here and, and perhaps just mention that one of the things you also touch on that we can do is have a devotion to the Old Testament saints. And this is something that strikes me as perhaps a future fruit of the conversion of the Jews. I was talking to Father Thomas Crean, and he mentioned how in the Carmelite rite, there are actually masses of the feast days of the Old Testament saints recognized. There, there is a collect of St. David and St. Adam. Yeah. And this is yeah. incredible. They, and I, I gather this is much more recognized and followed in the, uh, in the East. But even in Venice, which has always been open to the East, there's a church of St. Moses. Yeah. So it seems that the cults of the Old Testament saints as it's a whole area which could well be could flower. Well, the Carmelites must have Elijah in their calendar and a, a server in the Czech Republic. Uh, um, he showed me a whole mass of King David, the whole mass for him in the missile, the Roman missile. And I want, you know, we talk about liturgical changes started being pulled apart in the 50s. And some people say, well, what about what St. Pius X did to the breviary? And, you know, that's a massive subject, a bit. Uh, but what, what about removing the Old Testament saints from the calendar where they might be remembered in the martyrology, but their masses aren't said? I've not looked into this about the dates when it happened, but I'm sure in the 1800s, masses were being said uh, in the name of the prophets. Or Moses, we, yeah, we should find out more. Where, why were they removed? Whose idea was that? Mm. And that's why I think the more you look into something, you realize it all goes back to the Garden of Eden and the serpent. You know, it's 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 a never-ending war, and only they just won't be able to eradicate the truth from our Catholic ceremonies, no matter how much damage they do. Um the truth will still be carried by them. Although that do- I don't think we can be blase. We need to restore our tradition just by doing it. And again, if I say this elsewhere, but people might say there's no traditional mass near me, or they might say it's a 62, not 355. Just do what you can for the Holy Week or the Easter Triduum. Travel to a traditional mass for that. Stay in a hotel for three days. It's worth it. If you can do that, that's the beginning. If it's easier or if you have the means, do the same for the Feast of the Assumption or the Incarnation or Corpus Christi. Travel for the great feasts. And if you're able, go every Sunday or every day. But do what you can and don't say, I can do nothing. It's, it's, we, we can all do something. Even if you're housebound, you can meditate on the, the prayers in the Old Missal. Um and God will keep creating Jewish converts coming through 
in a trickle who bring a wealth of understanding with them that when it is enlivened by grace will will en enrich the whole church you know, god has everything foreseen and he he knows um how how and when he'll be converting the jews but he's he's never ceased since before pentecost so it it it, it is going to happen we can uh, there's the cavalry is coming reinforcements are on the way many of those jewish converts are drawn to the carmelite order mm -hmm. and you you touch on some of that enrichment in your book you give a couple of examples i don't know if you mean the converts but at least of elijah as their founder you know like he slept under a juniper tree in the shadow and he wanted to die because the jezebel and ahab were against him and he, he was at the end of his tether ready to die and he sleeps under this tree and an angel wakes him with the jug of water and the bread and says eat and drink and then woke him again and said eat and drink and then he walked 40 days in the strength of that food to the mountain of the lord which the juniper tree is the cross the shadow is the darkness on good friday the being wakened by an angel is, is the resurrection then the eating and drinking is the holy eucharist and going through the strength of that 40 days and 40 nights it says so you go through the highs and lows of the spiritual life to the mountain of god which is basically we can think 40 days after the resurrection jesus went to the mountain and ascended to heaven but we he calls us to follow to do that make the same journey and then elijah we see on the mountain with jesus at the transfiguration communicating with jesus it's because elijah lived the life of christ and the passion of christ that he's seen there communicating with him what were they talking about they're talking about jesus exodus which is his passion and moses as well who also spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting and uh, up the mountain um and they symbolize the prophets and the law elijah for the prophets moses for the law and you have them in communication with jesus because everything essential and wonderful they were chosen to to show it in their life and it to be recorded in the scriptures that the law and the prophets truly point to christ who fulfills them um, the whole of it and every part of it that's wonderful i i'd like to just say one final thing and i'd like to say this that for me what what really stands out most in reading your two volumes of if you believe moses is your ardent love for the jews and until now as i say many of the apostles have been hiding for fear of the jews which means that they lack love for them because they are not willing to die for their souls for the conversion of their souls and so those that repeat and parrot the platitudes and the the falsehoods of the world designed to cloak jewish power about anti-semitism and so on they actually reveal themselves a lack of love for the jews and i as i say salute and greatly admire your your love for the jews which is so palpable in these works saint paul spoke about um for the their enemies for the sake of the gospel but um 
can't remember the word, not elect for the sake of the fathers, beloved for the sake of the fathers. But we, we need to have another conversation, don't we? There's, there's so much more to say. Absolutely. Father Morsi, thank you so much for your time today. Viva Christo Rey. Viva. Viva.